You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. As I'm sure you heard last week, Curling Canada and the World Curling Federation announced that the City of Calgary would play host to the Scotties Tournament of Hearts, the Tim Hortons Briar, the Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship and the Men's World Championship in a bubble centered around the Markin McPhail Centre at Canada Olympic Park in Calgary. This was shortly followed by the announcement that the Grand Slam of Curling will also be coming to Calgary to host their Players' Championship and their Champions' Cup. Also last week, USA Curling announced that they were postponing their men's, women's and mixed doubles nationals until late spring. We wanted to cover these stories from different perspectives, so we've decided to split this week's podcast into two episodes. In part one, our guests are Nolan Thiessen of Curling Canada, Carson Ackroyd of Tourism Calgary, Mike McIntyre of the Winnipeg Free Press, who was inside the NHL bubble in Edmonton a few months ago, and Phil Drobnik of USA Curling. Our first guest this week is Nolan Thiessen, a world champion and three-time Briar champion who currently pulls double duty as the director of broadcast, marketing, innovation, event presentation, and athlete liaison for Curling Canada, while also serving as chair of the World Curling Federation's Athletes Commission. Nolan is one of the key individuals involved in the planning of the upcoming events in Calgary. So Nolan, before we get into the Calgary bubble and how Curling Canada approached making that decision, I wanted to touch base with you and ask you uh, how you're doing and how you and your family have been coping with the pandemic. Well, I mean, we're kind of like most. I mean, work from, find a way to work from home. And, and um, actually, my, my kids did homeschooling um, this year, not because of any real fear of the public schooling system, more just along the lines of, can create a bit of um, certainty. Um, so, you know, the kids have been doing school from home and helping out with that and working from home. Um, so it's it's just sort of been Groundhog Day like everybody else. Um, I think, you know, I, I struggle as a former athlete. I, I talk to a lot of them and I, I know what they're going through. It's so hard to not have a season, um, right? It's you know, I said this in a in a social media post this week when we made our announcement is competition for our athletes is normal. And it may seem like it's not, you know, it's 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 non-essential service to to some, but for our teams that are trying to represent us at the Olympics, I mean, it's it's the it's such a part of their life that, that, you know, my normal now is upended because I haven't went to restaurants, haven't been traveling and working, but for them, it's, I mean, they haven't got to compete. Like that's, that's what makes them normal and makes them feel normal. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it just been crazy year, but I know for myself, we're managing. You just touched on a point that has come up a lot in interviews and conversations I've had with elite curlers over the past several weeks, Nolan, and that's how mentally difficult the pandemic has been for them because most elite curlers build their schedules and their lives around the sport of curling, and they've been left with a big void that has been difficult to fill. And the Calgary bubble that we will be discussing in just a few moments seems to be giving them a little hope or at least something to aim for. Yeah, well, you know, like I always I always say I'm... You know they're not they're not curlers they're athletes right and and every athlete often does 
excels in a situation when they can when they can control it when they can create you know like most athletes go to whatever championship they want to win and then they work back from there and set their schedule for months and months in advance right i mean we did it all the, all the time with with the briar and the world championships as we effectively said we want to win that and then let's work back from there i mean we want to win everything but like let's work back to make sure that we're peaked for that and and it's the same and that so that entails everything that entails travel that entails um you know training and all of those other things and and i think the hard part is just the uncertainty right i mean i think athletes can handle if things are different it's just you know you can hardly plan five days in advance right now um and and say with any certainty that i this is what i'm going to do unless that plan involves you know watching a streaming service at home um so you know from an athlete perspective i totally get it it's been such a tough year from you know financial and 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 training and preparation this was meant to be you know everybody talks about the olympic year you know year the fourth year of every quad but the third year of every quad is really the biggest year to start to build right it's it's every it's when everybody qualifies for the trials and and it's when teams from internationally start to stake their claim for their for their olympic committees or or to to consider them for the olympics it's such a huge year and to have so much uncertainty with it is really tough and and i think that's what's exciting about this potential bubble is that it just does create some light at the end of the tunnel something to work for if people can safely do it to to, to get ready for as everyone knows by now nolan curling canada has chosen calgary as the host city for its bubble that will see curlers compete in the briar the scotties the canadian mixed doubles championship and the men's world championship and then potentially a couple of slam events although i know that the slams are a separate entity and don't fall under the curling canada umbrella what made curling canada settle on calgary as a city where it would host all of these events in early 2021 well, it kind of started earlier this summer when we started to look at, okay, so what what's going to happen if we have no fans, right? So we had to look at each one of our, you know, where we had intended to host with, you know, Thunder Bay and, and Kelowna and Ottawa in particular. And, and you know, what does it look like with no hosts or, or no fans? And, and can we financially make that happen, right? And then from that... You're, you're dealing with really three different health authorities. So you got to set up three different sets of protocols. There's a cost to building or building the venues for us to run our events and then tear them down and then take it to the next city. And we looked at it and we just said, the only way that I, that we think we can deliver anything this year is if we do it all in one place. Um, because there's, you know, some economies of scale there, but then also it's just, we can set up one set of protocols with one venue and one hotel and and so then our protocols don't change, just the athletes, right? And everyone can do the same set of protocols. So um, we talked to a few different places that had expressed interest. And Calgary just worked really well in terms of the venue. Um, they could give us, um, they were prepared to have us rent the venue for that long. And we had a hall across the street that really the perfect size for us because there was you know, it wasn't a 500-room hotel that we're asking to take over that we we can't fill. 
Um, but it's also not a 30 person hotel that, that, you know, we're going to need two or three hotels, you know, it worked really well in that we could set up our, our protocols and have, and effectively take over a hotel for the entire time and, and take over a venue for the entire time and have it to ourselves. So it was provided, um, the health and safety aspect to us. Additionally, you know, Alberta Health Services had worked with the NHL on their bubble and, and they had approved, um, you know, Calgary's plan to attempt to host the CFL bubble that at one point was going to take place. So they were familiar with this and they had a base level of knowledge in terms of what it was going to take to not only keep athletes and staff safe, but the community safe. To, to ensure that we're not bringing a bunch of people in and having them freely move about the community and, and increase risk, right? I mean, the, one of the big things with our plan is that we're trying to not, we're trying to keep our host city safe as well as our athletes and staff who are going to be there. For those who may not be familiar with the area around Canada Olympic Park, specifically the Mark and McPhail Centre, where the curling will take place, can you describe how far it will be for the athletes to get from their hotel to their curling venue and whether they will be separated from members of the general public while in transit? Yeah, um, well, like I said, we have the whole hotel to ourselves, so anybody at the hotel is going to be Curling Canada staff and Curling Canada um, athletes or whoever's there for our events. You know, the only people who will end up coming in there is some of the workers who will be in uh, to clean the rooms in full PPE. But, you know, yeah, the the hotel is is right across the, the road from the venue. And so you just, you know, get in your rental car. You won't have cross paths with anybody. You drive across and there's a separate parking lot where it will be, you know, security restricted for us. Athletes get in there and they'll enter straight into the venue and not cross paths with any of the broadcast people um, and just arrive directly in and, and head into the bubble or head into the venue. So, yeah, it's it's also a, a, a nice sized arena. It's got a lot of a lot of space underneath for us to be able to separate people and, and have everybody be able to do their jobs, but um, be able to be separated and, and um, create that space for safety. So, Nolan, the NBA and NHL spent tens of millions in testing and other precautions to ensure that athletes would be safe in the bubbles they created to complete their most recent seasons. Of course, Curling Canada does not have the same type of resources that the NBA and NHL have. So I'm wondering if your group is confident that you will be able to get through all these events without a major outbreak, despite having only a fraction of the resources that the NHL and NBA had at their disposal. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different situation. We're a national sport organization, right? We're not, we're not a professional sports league, so we're definitely playing in a different ballpark. But that being said, you know, these aren't protocols that some curling people wrote, right? Like we had doctors doing this. We had um, Dr. Bob McCormick, who works with on the podium and, and the Canadian Olympic committee is um, as well as the CFL for numerous years um, as well as Alberta health services. And, you know, we had doctors approve these protocols. And, and as I said, to keep the community and the athletes safe. So they understood that, you know, it, it's a different situation for us, but that, but that being said, they were confident in what was down on, you know, your, the venue and you're at the hotel i mean yeah you have to drive across the street so 
I mean, you're with your team in a car, so you're safe there. Just don't, like, you're not allowed to go through the drive-thru. Like, that's that's okay. It's, you know, we just have to have people to have that sacrifice. You know, from Curling Canada's perspective, as I said, you know, putting some of our events together, we, we had the unfortunate situation where we had to cut, you know, we had to postpone a lot of championships this year, which sucks right like who are u18 or u21s seniors like canadian mixed the club championships we had to have a lot of events that we couldn't run this year um but that being said part of you know running this bubble and and delivering these championships as we said you know for the athletes and the you know the build-up to the olympic games it's also you know we're keeping a lot of people employed we're keeping the organization up and running and and still being able to deliver curling. And, and I know for, from our perspective as well, you know, it was a bit of a legacy thing that, that the past few years, Curling Canada has done a lot of things to, you know, build up, uh, a, build up a reserve fund that we were comfortable with what we'd planned, that it's not going to drain that reserve fund. But that being said, our board is fully in support of a lot of the things that we, that we're doing here and and we are able to you know access some reserve funds if necessary to be able to keep people safe and deliver this right so it's like i said it's taken a buy-in from everybody and and it's taken actually you know years of fiscal management to lead up to this for us to be able to stomach this a little bit extra risk this year um but we've been doing it um you know just to as i said you know deliver the sport not just for the athletes, but to keep the sport healthy and to keep people employed. And, and um, that's, that's kind of where, where we've landed. Can you take me through what the safety protocols will be for the curlers once they arrive in Calgary? Well, it's actually starts a bit in advance. There's, you know, 14 days before you leave, there's going to be, you know, a bit of a due diligence from everybody, Um, you know, keep, keep contacts low, um, you know, ask your family to keep contacts low um, with, with the outside community, you know, training, don't, don't go play in league play um, unless, unless it's distanced, you know, do, do everything possible to try to keep your contacts with the outside community low. Um, everyone's going to be tested before they get on the airplane um, or get in the car to drive there. And they're going to be tested twice um, within the first five days um, when they arrive. Um, so there's going to be three tests for as well as social and, and isolation within a two-week window for for all the athletes to um, um, when they're when they're there. So yeah, we're we're not like yes, we're not we're not the NHL and the NBA testing everybody every single day but we're still testing people um, at least three times within a a 14 day window and as well as keeping them community isolated. So to, to keep, to keep potential spread low or or non-existent. Now, understanding that there's a bunch of time left before the athletes even arrive in Calgary to compete and that things could certainly change any day is the intention to have players compete without masks and without limitations, meaning that two people could sweep a rock and opposing players can sweep a rock out of the rings, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, we'd like it to be as much, uh, you know, normal curling as possible. And that's that's part of the deal with the bubble, right, is that if you enter the bubble and you're healthy and, and we can ensure 
you know, you're healthy up to a certain point. I mean, at that point, if nobody comes in or out, then whoever's inside is healthy is healthy. Right. So, you know, like we're not going to tell someone don't wear a mask, but that being said, our protocols are set up for where you can curl without a mask. Um, you can have two sweepers. That's, that's the intention. I mean, yeah, we're, we're going to see how things go. Um, and, and we're, you know, with everything right now, I don't think anything's set in stone, right? We're not saying this is exactly how it's going to be. Our intention would be to try to have as much normal curling as possible, but that'll obviously be a game time decision as we work through. But I mean, luckily our sport isn't a, you know, it isn't a contact sport. So it, it adds that extra layer for us where we're not, you're actually don't need to be that close to the other team very much. And you're not running into each other. It's not like basketball where you're, you know, you're wearing a tank top and shorts and sweating on each other. I mean, so there's uh there's, we're hoping for, for fans to tune in and see, you know, as regular curling as possible. As it stands now, Nolan, teams from several provinces, specifically on the East Coast and territories, would have to quarantine for 14 days upon a return home, which is fine for some of the top-tier teams, perhaps, who are likely to be in Calgary for the better part of four to six weeks to compete in multiple events, especially now that there are the two slams that have been tentatively added to the bubble. However, several other teams will have to decide whether they can afford to be away from work for close to a month just so that they can compete at the Briar or Scotties in a setup and environment where there will be no fans, no interactions like there usually is. In other words, teams would not get the usual Briar or Scotties experience. Now, understanding that things could change from day to day, has Curling Canada identified what you will do should different provinces or territories decide not to send a team to the Briar or Scotties? Well, as you said, we're not sure yet, right? I mean, we're, it's, it's tough to plan anything. And it's, I mean, at no point am I sitting there going to go, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then, as you said, tomorrow, it could change. Uh, uh, you know, from our perspective, the first step has been, we've talked to all the member associations and, and I've actually been on a few calls with the member associations athletes where I've just delivered the news and, and the and all the protocols and, and sort of what to expect so that everyone can make their decision. Right. And, and as you said, yeah, like there's people who, who would love to play in the Briar and the Scotties, but just from a life perspective can quarantine when they get home. Right. And that's totally understandable. Most of the MAs have, have, you know, they've been talking to all of their, all of their member association players to say, okay, this is what to expect. No hard feelings. If you don't want to sign up, don't sign up for playdowns, right? And, and let's discuss what what it might take. So, you know, we we realize that it's a moving target. And I've said to a lot of people, I don't think we're going to know much until mid-January because most of the country is, especially from a, a sport perspective and clubs, are closed um, and I don't foresee governments opening up too many things until after the new year um, you know at least 10 days after New Year's Eve just because you got to see if there's been New Year's Eve parties and anything has happened so um, we won't know much till mid-January from this perspective and we're just trying to communicate as much information as possible to as many of the potential stakeholders so that they can make their decision their have the most information possible to make the decision and then we'll we'll adapt after that. 
There will be more on the line at this season's World Championships than there usually is with the teams that finish in the top six of the Worlds automatically qualifying their countries for the Olympics. Now, typically a top six finish for Canada at the men's or women's Worlds is not a big ask. However, with the limited number of games that top Canadian teams will have played entering the Briar and Scotties, is there a concern at Curling Canada that a Tier 2 type team could get on a roll in Calgary and win the Scotties or Briar in a surprise, which would then put a lot of pressure on that team to recapture their form at the Worlds to finish in the top six and secure that Olympic spot for Canada? I mean, no matter what, there's always a concern, right? I mean, someone could go to the World Championships this year and... and get sick and then we're in ninth place right like it's obviously a concern you know i think from us from our perspective i mean we we also have the you know the olympic qualifying event so as much as you know this is our direct spot um technically we could have a trials where if someone wins the trials there they have to then go win their own spot into the games a couple weeks later um so there is a second chance to to the Olympic playdown situation. That being said, I mean, you know, if somebody gets through the gauntlet of our playdown process, like our 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 national championships, they've kind of earned it. Yeah, like obviously curling Canada, it's a huge deal to get top six at the World Championships this year, and we want our best rep as humanly possible. Um, to go there and win. And and that doesn't necessarily mean anyone in particular. We just want our rep to go there and play their best when they're there. And so we want to ensure that there's as many good teams at the national championships this year, because I think it's, we want it to be a tall test, right? We want someone to have to have went through that. That's part of the process. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see it's, there's a lot of scenarios in play, right? But I mean, I don't think, I don't know if anyone in particular is is, is going to say, you know, we got to you got to overhaul anything. I mean, if you actually look at our results from from the World Championships over the last few years, I mean, our national championships show uh, often often provide a pretty good winner. And actually, when you when you look at who wins tour events in September every year, it's often the top teams win those as well, um, right? So I'm not sure. If I if I would if I would say that I think there's going to be a huge upset winner or if there's I mean there's always that chance but um, we want it to be a tough test so that if it's it's not really an upset winner it's just somebody who maybe finally showed that they're they have what it takes and I mean from a joking perspective I I said this to a couple of the producers at TSN I said you know, it'll be, they always show the graphic. It says, this is the team's season record at the start of the Scotties and the Briar. And it might say this is, their season record is, you know, four and two, or, uh, you know, they were one and oh, when then the event they were in got shut down. So they've actually really only played eight curling ends this year. Uh, you know, it, it's wild. So we're, yeah, we're just trying to adapt as we go. Now, I know that the final order of events has not been published yet, but I believe all indications are that it will be the Scotties, the Briar, and then Mixed Doubles. Was any thought given to perhaps hosting the Mixed Doubles in between the other two events? This way, women playing both the Scotties and the Mixed Doubles would have been in the bubble for two consecutive weeks as opposed to playing the Scotties, leaving the bubble for some 10 days, and then coming back to play the Mixed Doubles after the Briar. The struggle with that is, is pushing back the Briar a week 
puts the winner into a big hurt for the world men's. Um, so, you know, from our perspective, we wanted to ensure that there was, you know, some runway for rest and recovery for our men's team, for whoever wins, um, to be able to, um, you know, peak for the world men's again. Um, so that was a huge concern for us. Like, I think, um, that that's kind of has facilitated the decision to do the, the mixed doubles afterwards, as much as it, it I, I agree with you. It, it does make some sense for whatever women's players are going to play in both to, to just stay and the men to arrive to play in that one and then stay for the, the briar. But, um, you know, to back it up by another eight to 10 days, the briar, then all of a sudden the team has less than a week to get ready for the world championships. And, and that's just not enough time. And finally, Nolan, at last report, the World Curling Federation is still planning on hosting the Women's Worlds in Switzerland. It would seem to make more sense that for this season only, that all curling championships be held in the same bubble in Calgary. That said, what will be involved in sending our Scottish champion to the Women's Worlds? Will they have to head there for early quarantine? And might that preclude some players from competing in another event, such as the Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship? So they haven't released their full protocols yet. I'm actually the chair of the World Curling Federation Athlete Commission as well. So I've I've been in contact, you know, through my Curling Canada job as well as as the chair of that athlete commission with the WCF quite a bit. They're working through their protocols as well to make sure that they keep everybody, you know, safe and, and healthy over there as well. But they haven't they haven't finalized yet. You know, my uh my understanding is that there's going to be there's going to be a lot of protocols in place there as well to keep everybody safe so it'll be it'll be a similar situation in terms of how early they need to get there i mean you know it's 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 actually one where you know our women's team you know whoever goes to an international world from canada goes early right they don't arrive two days in advance like they do for the national championships so it's likely not that much of a change. It's just, are they going directly into a bubble, right? Or are they doing their own self bubble to, to ensure that they're, they're safe. So, um, you know, to be determined once, uh, once Switzerland's able to um, finalize their protocols as well. This season, From the Hack has not approached any of our usual podcast sponsors because we understand that the pandemic and the limited curling season so far has made it difficult on most curling stakeholders. That said, I want to thank Hardline Curling, Jedice, Asham Curling Supplies and Equipment, and the Curling Zone for their support over the years. And we look forward to working with them again when the curling community, and the whole world for that matter, has turned the page on the COVID-19 pandemic. My next guest this week is Carson Aykroyd, who is the Senior Vice President of Sales for Tourism Calgary, who joins me to discuss how Calgary came to be the hub city for curling events in early 2021. Carson, just to provide some context to our audience, so what type of impact has the pandemic had on the tourism industry in Calgary since last March? Yeah, Frank, it, it's it's uh, the impact, you know, uh, add to the tourism sector. Um, the tourism sector was, was, was first hit. Uh, and it was immediate, and it will be the sector that is sort of one of the last to recover coming out of this because the confidence that people have in travel, uh, all of a sudden there's restrictions that, that uh, you know, in various countries, the ability to, to travel, you know, outside your, your, you know, your region, your province, your country, um, everybody's going through different stages of it. And unfortunately, even more, more challenging is, that, uh, is the dynamics of those rules change by the week. 
which makes it very difficult for anybody to plan. And, and so we did see some, some activity from a leisure perspective that was very regional uh, in the summer period. But for the most part, you know, very little to no international travel with the Canadian border being closed. And so the, the sector has really been hit uh, dramatically hard and, and um, is, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a group that is really uh, obviously looking forward to a vaccine being rolled out. What was the process for Tourism Calgary? Did you approach Curling Canada when word started getting out that they might be looking for a city to host several of their national championships? Or did they approach you to gauge your interest? Yeah, I think you. I think you've kind of, you know, I think you you set up set up this whole piece very very well in that because we because we're responsible for trying to drive tourism activity to Calgary, uh, it is our job to to try and find opportunities of what could come to you know what could come to the city at all during this period and and so the the you know you started to see and, and sport being such a resilient piece. Um, you started to see leagues start to figure this out. And of course, I think you, you certainly saw some, some, some sports and soccer over in Europe and, and, and uh, some baseball in, in Asia. And then of course the NBA bubble and the uh, NBA and the NHL bubble take place. And, and with the NHL bubble happening in, in, uh, in Edmonton, what you saw was, is that, that the province of Alberta was very much um, in favor of, of wanting to welcome is safely welcome activity back to the province and and with that attitude and and, and the positive response from our health authority um, we were looking at started to think about what things could we go after um, the nhl one had gone to edmonton and we started looking at other sports that we thought could safely potentially safely happen and started reaching out to a number of of clients across the uh, across the country and of course um you know, there, there's a strong, very strong connection into uh, into Calgary for curling. And, and interestingly enough, we received a phone call uh, from from Brian Murphy. And Brian's Brian's company um, supplies um, some of the uh, signage, uh, the digital signage that's used at all the Curling Canada events across the country. And and you know, we were reaching out to a number of different groups, but Brian specifically phoned and gave us a call and said, listen, you know, we're based here in Calgary. Wouldn't it be great to not have to travel around the country and have a curling bubble in Calgary? And, and so he, he uh, you know, he certainly was, was uh, encouraging us, but we did reach out to Curling Canada as far back as June of, of, uh, of, uh, of this year and started conversations. And, and they were in the midst of trying to figure out what that looks like. And, and all of the efforts, you know, took, it took a tremendous amount of time and effort to get to it, but um, that's how long it takes in this complicated environment to try and figure everything out. And it finally got announced this week. Now, I realize that Tourism Calgary will not be responsible for the safety protocols. That will be a Curling Canada thing. However, did the possibility that an outbreak could potentially occur inside the bubble while the eyes of the curling world are on your city give you pause for thought during the process of deciding whether or not you wanted Calgary to be the host community for this curling bubble? Yeah, I, I think it's a very good question um, that you've posed because it's it's uh, it's critical for us to be when we evaluate any investment we're making on on something that we want to bring to the city is that we have to have a confidence that that event can happen and can happen safely. And the safe piece has never been more important than it is today. Um, we have a, a situation where the health plans that that uh, are being put together by Curling Canada 
are, uh, are having to be reviewed by Alberta Health and, and they've provided extensive input to, to make sure that it is compliant and that's going up to uh, public health on the federal side as well. So in both cases, we get a confidence level that the provincial and federal authorities have thoroughly reviewed these plans to ensure that the safety of the, of the athletes, uh, the competitors, the, the officials um, are definitely front and center as well community at large. And if, if uh, on top of that, once, you, once you've got a comfort level that there's a good plan, you also have to have a comfort level that the individuals that you're working with uh, can execute that plan properly and, and so that you don't have uh, any issues. And, and, you know, the plans contemplate, you know, if there is an outbreak and you have to be able to execute that plan very well. And, and I can tell you working with Curling Canada over the last six months, uh, they have been incredibly diligent and thoughtful around how they are going to protect the safety of the community and, and the curlers and the officials, et cetera, and feel very confident that that this group can execute this um, well on behalf of the market. So we do a lot of due diligence, and the reputation of the city is, is definitely uh, on the line when this happens. But what we've seen from Curling Canada makes us feel very confident that, that they can do this safely, and we believe that uh, – um, it will be very positive for the market. Now, what would be the ideal outcome for your organization and for the city of Calgary as hosts of the curling community for some two months in early 2021? Yeah, you know what? I, I must tell you, I mean, you know, in the midst of, of, a, of a crisis, oftentimes you look, you look for some silver linings that you can find on behalf of, of any market. And, and for us, you know, it's never been never been done before where all of these major events, and there'll be six of them in total, that take place in Calgary over, over this span, um, there is significant broadcast uh, that's going to be coming out of these six events taking place uh, across, uh, across that period. And with that and the investment they've, we've made to support Curling Canada and what they're doing this year, there will obviously be opportunities for us to profile uh, Calgary, and, and we want the best opportunity possible to try and kickstart uh, the visitor economy in Calgary this spring and summer. And so as people in the pent-up demand for travel comes to be, we want to be sure that, that what we profile through these curling events over the course of you know, February, March, and April will drive uh, significant consideration for you know for Canadians and and people outside of Canada to consider coming coming to Calgary and, and the Bow Valley corridor to experience everything we have to offer and and I think you can ask for a better platform because this winter we really believe and I'm sure you do as well there's going to be a tremendous number of people watching curling uh, with with not as many things to do as as we get to the back end of this pandemic so we believe this presents a great opportunity for us to welcome the rest of Canada and the world to come and visit our city. And finally, Carson, I realize that the pandemic is making travel and long-term planning difficult at the moment, but should things clear up and should travel restrictions be decreased and quarantines become a a thing of a past in a few months, what are some of the other events that you are currently uh, have planned in Calgary and perhaps other activities that people could take advantage of if they were to travel to your city? Well, it's, 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 it's a very interesting question that you ask because because it is a, it is a get, getting to this point, as we talked about earlier, has been a real challenge uh, because of all of the ebbs and flows of calendars. You've seen so many events that thought they were going to move forward and then decided to postpone 
Um, and, and so what we're seeing with our calendar for events, and including, you know, including the, the, uh, the biggest event that happens in Calgary every year is the, being the Calgary Stampede, is that it's really, you know, as it sits today, there's so many event, events are just trying to figure out when they can make the decision to go forward. And, and of course, we have the benefit here in Calgary of, of being uh, nestled in the, in the base of the Rocky Mountains and having tremendous uh, outdoor, uh, outdoor activities that can happen regardless of what takes place with the pandemic. And we certainly saw uh, lots of traffic this summer enjoying, uh, enjoying all of the things our city has to offer with you know, many of our attractions, but also coming to enjoy the mountains at the same time. So all of those will be here regardless, which, which of course is, is what we'll introduce people to during the, during the uh, curling broadcast. But in terms of our major events, it's hard to say definitively what's going to happen this summer until we get a better idea of what's going to be uh, what's going to be rolling out. But hopefully, by the time that some of the curling broadcasts start, we'll be able to be a little bit more uh, definitive about which events are actually going to take place uh, in Calgary. And, and uh, uh, you know, I am a, I am a, a very poor but avid curler, and I can hardly wait to start watching uh, watching the events start myself. So, um, I'm hoping we'll have some uh, good content for everybody to hear about Calgary when they start. My next guest this week is Mike McIntyre of the Winnipeg Free Press, who was in the Edmonton bubble during the NHL playoffs to cover the Winnipeg Jets and later to cover the Stanley Cup final. Mike joined me to discuss what it was like to cover hockey from inside the bubble and what it might be like for journalists covering the Calgary curling bubble should journalists be allowed inside that bubble when the time comes for those events. Mike, you were one of the members of the media who covered the recent NHL playoffs from inside the bubble in Edmonton. Can you walk us through what that was like? Did you have to get tested each day? Were you forced to stay inside the bubble the whole time you were in Edmonton? And, and things and the details of that nature. I mean, I was in the rink. I was in the empty arenas watching the games, covering the games. Um, I wasn't in the same hotel as the players, and I wasn't I wasn't subjected to the exact same, like I didn't have to undergo daily testing. So it was almost like there was a secondary bubble that was created for a few of us in the media. Um, but we, I was still staying in a, in a hotel and I, I was free to sort of come and go from the rink. Um, I was advised to obviously limit my contact or exposure in the community. And I had to do symptom tests and temperature checks before I could get into the rink, but, but so, I mean, I was in the bubble, but I kind of, I was and I wasn't, I guess, is sort of the best way to put it. And I suspect curling is going to be very similar. I, I doubt they're going to let the media, like the, they're going to be testing the media for COVID every day, if that's what the plan is for the curlers, just because of the expense involved. But, and I'm guessing they're still going to make you do, like the interviews might still be done electronically. So like for us, I was in the rink, but rather than a face-to-face in the dressing room, we would still have to do our interviews over Zoom, even though I was actually in the building with the, with the players. They were still keeping us apart. Were any members of the media actually allowed inside the primary bubble, Mike, or was the primary bubble a media-free zone with all media contact taking place via Zoom, as you described it? So every team, all 24 teams that that entered the bubble, um, 12 in Edmonton, 12 in Toronto to start, and then they, of course, consolidated it all for the last two rounds to Edmonton. Uh, Every team was required to bring one in-house social media person, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. So the teams were doing their own 
up close media that was that one individual was in the bubble they were staying in the team hotel they were being tested every day the only other media and i wouldn't count in-house social media as they're certainly not mainstream media the only other media that was allowed is the nhl permitted two of their own reporters for nhl.com for the actual league's website to be embedded um in the bubble same thing in the player hotels and to produce content. So there was actually a bit of a a hue and cry from the mainstream media. I'm a member of the pro hockey writers association and, and uh, Frank Saravelli is, is our president. And we, we objected on on that and said, well, if the NHL is going to let a couple of their own reporters in, then we ought to have some representatives of our own. And the NHL ultimately said, take a hike uh no so i would say there was zero independent media allowed in the in the embedded aspect of things um and and that was they 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 claimed that it was a safety issue that it was because of testing that they didn't have the capability to to sort of um add other members of the media to the the large numbers that they already had each team had i believe a party of 51 that includes players coaches management staff trainers and the one social media person and they didn't want the numbers to go beyond that now typically at major sporting events such as the nhl playoffs or at the scotties or the briar players from the winning teams and losing teams are made available to members of the media following a game either in the locker room or in the case of uh, curling in the scrum area, including players who may have had a difficult game and for whom members of the media might have difficult questions. Was that a concern during the NHL playoffs inside the bubble? Did you get a sense that the league and or the teams themselves might have been protecting players from having to face the media following a difficult game? Well, it absolutely was a concern because, I mean, there already were concerns prior to all this about an increasing push within the National Hockey League to try and control their own message. And we're seeing that. Teams more and more now are are building in-house media departments. Uh, and mainstream media um, is, you know, in a lot of cases being left out in the, in the dark. And here was an example now where we absolutely were. I mean, there was this periphery bubble. So, yes, we got permission to be inside the rinks. And obviously we could, you can see a lot from covering a game in person that you don't get on television. Um, there was, of course, stories to be done just about how the whole thing was working or not working. You know, the, the, um, the, the color, the anecdotes of, of an empty arena and, and just everything that was going on in the world. So there was certainly value for us being there, but we were missing a key part of it, and that's the human contact and especially the one-on-one contact. And, I mean, I, 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 I've never really covered curling, but I can certainly appreciate how relationships, especially in in curling, can be vital to telling stories. And it's going to be very difficult if if media are, in fact, kept at an arm's length and there's not sort of the usual fraternizing that would happen, you know, face-to-face where, um, you know, you hear stories and, and things like that. If, if it's all going to be done electronically and very structured and rigid, I think you lose a huge element of, of the charm of an event like that and the ability to tell some of the great stories. And we certainly saw that in the NHL. We were limited to how many questions we could ask. We were limited by time. We were limited by how many uh, players would be made available each day. 
and it was a constant issue and, and a lot of complaining about it. I think we all made sort of the best of, of a not-so-great not situation and tried to focus on the stories we could tell as opposed to ones that were harder to tell. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been on the jet speed for a number of years now, and I, it's been almost a full year since I had a face-to-face -face with any member of the team that I cover because, you know, I have to go back to about last February and even before the, the, the pandemic caused the pause in the season, there were protocols put in place that, that took us out of the dressing room because there were growing concerns about the rise in, in COVID. So, yeah, it's, it's something that we miss greatly, and who knows when we're getting it back. The NHL has insisted that none of this is permanent, that when it's safe to do so, all of the old protocols will be put back in place. Um, but, you know, anybody having to cover a sporting event these days without that face-to-face -face contact is going to face an extra challenge. To provide you with a little bit of context, Mike, Curling Canada has yet to announce what type of media presence they will allow inside the bubble in Calgary. Now, there are rumblings that a handful of media members will be allowed inside the bubble, but how much contact they will have with the curlers is something that will likely get decided much closer to the events themselves when Curling Canada has a better gauge of the actual COVID-19 uh, situation in Calgary at the time and the risks it represents to the bubble. Here's the thing that I, I think that is a real concern right now that everybody should be gravely concerned about is what, what just happened in Edmonton last week with regards to the, the Canadian World Junior Hockey Team who are in a bubble. They all had to quarantine. They're all insulated. And only a few days into their camp, the whole thing had to get shut down for two weeks because two players and a staff member got COVID. COVID got inside the bubble. And that just shows you can, you know, you can have a bubble, but it, it can't, it's not completely airtight. You still have things like uh, hotel workers, you know, food and beverage staff. They're not quarantining for that entire duration in the bubble. They're still going home. And while they try and limit the contact between the bubbled players and any outside staff, including the media, it, this shows that you can't entirely keep it out. And with the COVID numbers, what they are right now, especially in Alberta, um, I've read that they're 10 times worse now than they were when the NHL return to play happened. I mean, I'm not even convinced this is going to happen necessarily. I know they're planning for it, but, you know, just I could see the World Juniors getting cancelled, and I could certainly see this imploding too, because they may not be able to create an environment that truly is safe for the competitors and for the staff that have to work. And so I think if they are looking to bring anybody in, I mean, those media members, if they were to be brought in, like they would have to quarantine presumably for two weeks before anything happens. And they would then have to be basically held prisoner in that bubble for the entire duration. They couldn't come and go. They couldn't go to the grocery store or to a restaurant. Like you'd have to be following every single protocol. And even that wouldn't be a guarantee that, that it's going to work. Now, aside from the obvious frustrations from reporters at not being able to have access to the players uh, that they wanted to interview as they typically might have, was there another concern that stood out to you while you were in the NHL bubble in Edmonton? Sorry, I was just going to say, so one, one, of the, one quick thing here that is a concern, I think, whenever you only have a few players available and everybody having to do the same format, one thing nobody wants is for 
all of media to start looking and sounding the same, right? Like that's nobody, that doesn't benefit anybody if you have 10 reporters covering an event and they get the same two players and the same three-minute sound bites and then everybody has to write something off that. Like that's not journalism, that's really stenography. So one one thing that I found improved as we went along in the in the bubble in Edmonton with the Stanley Cup playoffs and certainly now in this off-season that's happened is teams have been a little more flexible to make players available, whether it's on Zoom or even phone calls for one-on-ones and recognizing that there's real value in still being able to tell unique stories and not just have everything look and sound the same. So perhaps that will be something with this curling bubble that, you know, they will allow some of these curlers to branch off. It may not be in the traditional face-to-face format, but there's still ways electronically that it could be done and still ensure some unique content gets produced and some of these stories get told. Mike, I'm sure you got to speak with several of the Jets players uh, throughout the NHL playoffs. What was the experience like for them? Did you get a sense that they were comfortable inside the bubble, or was it a case of them wanting to get out of there as quickly as they could? Oh, the vast majority couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, You know, that's not to say these guys, like some people, I heard outside comparisons we're calling it like a prison. This was not like a prison. They were staying in a five-star hotel. They were eating really good meals every day. They had access to a gym, you know, um, electronics and, and all the, you know, modern conveniences. So, you know, staying at the JW Marriott in Edmonton, uh, I've been in prisons. I covered the crime beat for 20 years. Uh, the JW Marriott five-star hotel in Edmonton's ice district is about the furthest thing from a prison that there is. That being said, these guys were away from their families for, for teams like Tampa and Dallas, which ended up going all the way, of course, I mean, they were gone from their loved ones for two and a half months, and that was very difficult, no doubt. That's something they never would have had to do before. Um, And really, you know, I think as as much as they missed a lot of things by being in there, one one common refrain that I heard is that there was such a hyper-focus on the task at hand. Like, there was almost a, a feeling like, well, we're here anyways, so we might as well make the most of this, and let's not just go through the motions, let's try and win this all. So I don't think the competitive balance suffered at all. In fact, I would say it was better than ever. I mean, this was probably the the hardest Stanley Cup that anyone's ever had to win. And so any talk of it being tainted to me was always kind of foolish. Like this was really hard earned, Uh, but for sure there was a lot of boredom because they didn't really get to do anything. You know, there, there were a couple excursions as they got deep into it some very controlled things. They'd go to a driving range, that sort of thing. But really they were in, they were either in the hotel or the hockey rink 24 hours a day. And, you know, their access to even each other was really limited. And so there was a lot of boredom for sure. And guys were very happy to get out of there. And then I can just tell you from a viewing perspective, you know, being in a 18,000 seat arena, watching the, best athletes in the world uh, play the fastest game on earth hockey without any fans was absolutely surreal and I don't think I ever got used to it I was there sort of for a month in two different increments I was there for about two weeks when the Winnipeg Jets were playing their opening series against Calgary they lost I went home for a bit and then I went back for the Stanley Cup final and, and covered that for two weeks um, 
And, you know, there was a lot of bells and whistles and the NHL did a tremendous job in making the arena look really good on television and even making it sound good with some of the enhanced, you know, noise and, and that sort of thing. But um, the players certainly recognize that, you know, they play a sport that momentum is so big and crowds, you know, get behind you or you take a crowd out of a game and that just wasn't there. And, and that was something guys noticed throughout the entire ordeal and for many of them, it was an ordeal. And finally, Mike, of course, this is a curling podcast, but I'm sure much of the audience also follows the sport of hockey. You cover the Jets for the Winnipeg Free Press. We've been hearing mixed reports about uh, the next NHL season and when it will start. What are your sources telling you? When can we expect to see some more NHL hockey? Yeah, they're going to find a way, and it's going to happen sooner than later now. There's some positive things just in the last couple of days in terms of of some progress being made. I mean, the fact is these are multimillionaire, in some cases billionaire owners and millionaire hockey players, and they're arguing over not COVID, but money. And there's not much of a public appetite for that. I'll give these guys credit. They've managed to keep their differences mainly private as opposed to airing their dirty laundry in public because uh, it would not go over well if they were to be ranting and raving about, uh, about money as we're in the midst of a pandemic with people losing livelihoods and jobs and that sort of thing. Uh, they will find a way. I, I believe we're going to get a season not at the beginning of January, as was the original target, likely more towards the end of January, something in the range of probably 48 to 58 games. And for Canadian hockey fans, I mean, one thing to really get excited about is there is going to be an all-Canadian division. Uh, so we are going to get, uh, uh, like never before, a steady diet of all-Canadian matchups, uh, which should um, which should be great for stirring the national debate and bragging rights and all that. So, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be in a bubble, uh, unlike the playoffs. Um, the likely scenario is they're going to be playing in their home rinks that will be empty, at least to start. Lots of encouraging news, of course, uh, on vaccines recently. Um, I still don't think that's something that's going to really play a part in this coming season, but certainly beyond this this next season, that will be most welcome. Um, but for sure, we're all kind of anxious to get uh, to get hockey going again, and it should be happening here uh, within the next you know month, month and a half. Before introducing my final guest in part one of this week's podcast, I wanted to encourage you to look for part two of the podcast later this week when we hear from the curlers themselves. I'll be joined by Olympic gold medalist Mark Kennedy of Team Jacobs. Tabitha Peterson, who was just tabbed, see what I did there, to represent the United States in both the 2021 World Women's Championship and the 2021 World Mixed Doubles Championship, along with Joe Polo. We'll also be joined by new mom, Laura Walker, who discusses what she's been told about bringing her baby into the bubble for the Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship and possibly the Scotties. Four-time Scotties participant Jill Brothers of Nova Scotia joins me to discuss the tough realities and choices that players from some provinces will have to make should they qualify for the Briar Scotties. And Mike Fournier of Quebec and I discuss the somewhat unique way his provincial association is looking at deciding who they might send to the Scotties and Briar if they cannot host a provincial championship. My final guest this week is Phil Drobnik, who is the National Director of the Men's and Mixed Doubles Programs with USA Curling. Phil joins me to discuss USA Curling's recent announcement that they were postponing their major national championships and also to discuss the impact that the pandemic has had on a high-performance program and also on a larger curling community across the U.S. 
Coach Phil, I'm going to start with what has become the necessary and most important first question of just about every interview I've done over the past several months. How are you doing and how are you and your family coping with life during the pandemic? Doing very good, um, you know, following following the guidelines and doing everything we can do to stay safe. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, haven't had a lot of um, impact negatively on, on COVID or um or anything like that. So, um, you know, we're doing everything we can and, and uh, you know, continuing to follow the guidelines here that we have in the U.S. and, you know, making sure we're wearing masks and we're, you know, making sure we're socially distancing and things like that. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a long summer, but the, the, the bonus of the summer was uh, I was able to play more golf than I've ever played. So that was, uh, that was uh, probably the highlight. So I was, I was happy about that. So, but all in all, doing doing well, and um, you know, uh, this day and age, as long as uh, everybody's healthy and and uh, working, there's not not much you can complain about. USA Curling recently announced that it's postponing its men's, women's, and mixed doubles national championships until later in the spring of 2021. Can you talk about the process and how USA Curling came to that decision? Jess uh, uh, Jess Schultz, uh, who's the director of the women's program, and uh, Jeff the uh, uh, plush. Our, our CEO has have worked closely with athletes. Uh, they see the athletes advisory council um, for USA Curling and the US, uh, you know, US OPC the, uh, um, to to ensure that we can do everything we can to keep our athletes safe through this pandemic. And um, we have uh, our team doc is uh, Dr. Cole and and the, the the chief medical officer at the US OPC, Dr. Finoff, have been great in helping to advise us. Um, when setting up COVID protocol and and really just following the direction of the doctors of you know what's safe and what can we do safely and you know at this point with the with the way the numbers are in the U.S. and uh, across the United States and they're they're rising um, it didn't make sense to to have a national championship we you know it would be challenging to keep everybody safe um, to get everybody there safely and. And, you know, at this point, a lot of clubs are shut down and there's not a lot of ice for people to play play on. So um, it would it would, would have been a, uh, a challenge. So at that point, um, it was deemed that, uh, you know, it was best to postpone it till a later date and until it could be played safely. And, uh, um, you know, because the, the number one priority, as I said, is the, the safety for not only the athletes, but the coaches, the officials, the volunteers, um, you know, and the host sites. So, um it was it was a challenging decision, and you know it took months of plan. You know we we spent uh, back in um, June discussing what nationals could look like, what uh, if held, and what a bubble could then look like. Because we we broached the you know can we can we do it bubble and can we do it safely? And you know we had um, criteria written up as to uh, how we could host a bubble, and um, you know just within in the last as you know. In the last uh, month, the numbers have just really gotten out of hand here and at the highest point we've ever we've ever been. So we need to make sure that everybody stays safe. Along with the announcement of the postponed national championships came word that Team Schuster, Team Peterson, and the team of Tabitha Peterson and Joe Polo had been selected to represent the United States at the Men's Worlds, the Women's Worlds, and the Mixed Doubles Worlds, respectively. Can you take us through the process that led to the decision of naming those three teams to represent the United States at what will be a very important world championship with Olympic berths on the line? 
Yeah, no, we, we, you know, we, we actually started these discussions when we, when we started talking about this, when, when COVID hit and we started doing our planning um, over the summer, but uh, you know, there was no question that these, these teams didn't get an opportunity. They, they won the national championships in 2020 in 2020 and they didn't get an opportunity to, to represent the, the, the United States in the world championships in, in 2020. So, um, you know, for me, it was a no brainer that, that these teams um, have earned the right to, to represent our country and uh, to, to go and, and um, fight for our Olympic birth for us. And uh, so, I mean, I think it, it was pretty straightforward from, a, from, from my perspective, obviously there was a lot of, um, people involved in the decision and it was a, um, a collaborative decision that was, you know, embraced by everybody that was a part of it from the, you know, U S Olympic committee to the, to the, um, uh, athletes advisory commission and to all the directors and, and staff at USA curling. So I think it was pretty collective decision and, um, you know, certainly could look at different areas, but this, this, this was the, this was the best, uh, move that we could make. And, um, and they, they, like I said, they earned it on the ice. They won the opportunity to represent the, uh, to represent the country. The pandemic has had financial implications in just about every sector, including in the world of sports. Has USA Curling been able to maintain its support of the athletes in their high-performance program, and has the pandemic made it difficult for teams in the U.S. to maintain their typical levels of sponsorships from outside sources? Yeah, absolutely. It made it, it makes, uh, it, I mean, everybody's struggling, you know, for sponsorships and, and for, for, for time on the ice and, you know, various things like that. So it's, it's certainly had an impact and it's certainly going to continue to have a, a impact on sponsorship dollars. Um, you know, a lot of the, the partners that the individual teams had, um, you know, are, are in a tough spot right now. And, uh, and, you know, so they're not, not in a position to, sponsor potentially the way they used to um you know fortunately we've got a a couple of real um solid sponsors in usa curling that that have uh continued to be strong sponsors of ours with our um sponsorship with the twin cities orthopedics you know we get our our team doctor dr cole is a part of that organization and our team trainer um mike glenshin is is a part of uh, our partnership with tco so we're very very fortunate to have that partnership and you know and, and our partnership with toyota which has been you know both are very very strong supporters of the high performance program and usa curling so um you know fortunate on that end to have those to have those ones um but you know as i said you know the, as you know the individual teams um you know it's not easy in this day and age to go out and 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 get sponsors and it's especially not easy if you're not playing competitions so um you know i know they've all taken a hit and they've all um uh you know started to adapt but um you know here's to hoping that we can you know get a vaccine and move forward um with the season at some point safely and you know whether it's uh summer curling and and fall curling and moving into the olympic trials we can be somewhat back to playing games the way they used to be playing one of the fallouts of the pandemic, at least in the curling community, is the dramatic impact it's having on clubs throughout the world. There are many clubs that have now closed down for the season, and there is a legitimate fear with the curling com- within the curling community that several of these clubs may not reopen post-pandemic. Can you speak to the current situation in the U.S., and is there a concern that you might lose many of the clubs that have started to open across the country over the past few seasons? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's always a concern. Um, you know, having you know myself being on a on, on a board uh, at Kromosabi here and up in in Everett, Minnesota. Um, you know, we're we're battling the same thing that the rest of the clubs are battling throughout the throughout the country. And um, you know, it's trying to survive this season with potentially like our club. We're not we're not at this point. We've postponed putting the ice in. And uh, how do you survive? And how do you you know reaching out to your members? But um, I think the fortunate thing that we have going for us in USA curling is that a lot of these clubs are newer and um, they've got a lot of excitement. Uh, you know, as, as we know, curling's growing um, very, very, at a very fast pace in, in the U S and um, so we've got a lot of energy around it. So I think if we can, can turn this corner and get moving in a, in a positive direction with the COVID numbers and, uh, and the pandemic that um, I think that we can still be in a pretty good position in USA curling. Um, You know, we don't have a lot of those clubs that have been hanging around and just holding on. Um, A lot of our clubs are new and really um, prospering. So uh, I think that that's a, that's, that's the, that's the bright side of, of our um, spots. You know, obviously there's going to be clubs that may not reopen that are older and that were challenged. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing, um, you know, even my club in, in particular, we're looking is we've, we're, we've got a lot of older members. Will they come back? Um, you know, if we don't open this season and that was our biggest concern, if we don't open at all, will, will they come back? So, um, you know, that's yet to be told, but, you know, I think if we continue to, to um, offer a good product, and, and and as we know, in the in in the winter, it's a, it's a great thing for people to be able to get together with friends, get some competition, get exercise. So uh, I'm com- uh, I'm hopeful, I guess is the is the the word to use that uh, we'll be able to get back to our the game that we all love to play, and and um, and 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 really be able to have people enjoy playing it in a in a safe way when it's when we can. Over the past several weeks, I've spoken to several curlers who have shared with me that what has surprised them the most during the pandemic has been how mentally taxing it has been for them because most elite curlers build their schedules and their lives around the sport of curling, and they've been left with a big void that has been difficult to fill. How has USA Curling gone about ensuring that the athletes in the high-performance program are not only staying physically fit, but that they also have the tools at their disposal to deal with the psychological impacts of the pandemic? Yes, uh, this has been a top priority of ours, and we've taken this very seriously. Um, our, uh, you know, our sports psychologist is Dr. Carlin Anderson um, out of Premier Sports Psychology, and she's been working with us. I think you know, you and I have had conversations about her in the past, and she's been with us now for six or seven years. And um, you know, she's been uh, all hands on board with with her, and you know, working with our athletes and making sure that they're. Uh, mental health is 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 healthy and making sure they're staying healthy with their with mental health and um, it's been challenging and and I know our teams have been challenged by it um, you know not only teams but our coaches and, and even me you know I'm used to traveling to uh, different places every weekend starting in in August and running through April and you know I've been been home more now than than I have been in a long time. I I bought a pair of skis this week and I'm going to start skiing and uh, I just went and got my skates sharpened and I'm heading out to the rink later today to to skate. So um you know, I think the the, the way around this is we're trying to keep our athletes busy with other things, keeping them active, um keeping them in communication with their teams so they're checking in weekly and doing things like that. Uh, when we had ice, we were trying to make sure that athletes were getting to the ice that just 
even being their, their um, I don't know if you call it safe spot where you're just throwing rocks and you're by yourself and, you know, listening to the rock go down the ice. And we know how, how that can just help athletes uh, when they're doing things like that. So um, I know our, uh, uh, Dr. Cole and, and Dr. Anderson have gotten a lot of, have done a lot of work with our athletes and we're really thankful for that opportunity that we have to work with them and, and thankful that they're, they've done a great job of keeping our athletes, athletes, um, strong mentally through this pandemic and finally coach phil it's starting to look like the uh, calgary bubble might allow foreign teams to come into the country and not necessarily go through the 14 days of quarantine because of the multiple tests you would be taking upon arriving that being said if team schuster as an example had to spend 14 days in quarantine in Canada before hitting the ice, is it safe to assume that the team might spend as much as three weeks or perhaps a month in Canada so that they could do the quarantine and then have enough time on the ice to get ready for the World Championship? Yeah, we're we're certainly exploring every option that we can. Um, we, we won't be sending the team in for a 14-day quarantine and then and then hitting the ice on day 15 or 16. So, um, you know, exploring the options that we have, what does that look like? Um, you know, if it means coming in a couple weeks early, it means coming in a couple weeks early. And that's what we have to do uh, to make sure that they're prepared. Um, you know, we're all hands on deck here. This is, we know what, what's at stake with the, uh, with the Olympic berth, um, you know, having to finish in the top six. So um, the team is prepared to do everything they can to uh, represent their country and earn, earn that, that berth, obviously, you know, and it, it's a perfect team for that. They know how important the Olympics are. They know having, you know, being the, the reigning Olympic gold medalist, uh, that they want to be able to be prepared um, to be at their best, you know, whatever that looks like, right, without having playing the 80 to 90 games they normally have, but being at their best when that competition starts. So, um, you know, if it's coming over a month early and doing our 14 day quarantine and practicing for 14 days, you know, I mean, we have to be mentally prepared for that to be there six weeks or five weeks, whatever it takes. And that does it for part one of this week's episode. A big thank you to Nolan Thiessen, Carson Aykroyd, Mike McIntyre, and Phil Drobnik. Don't forget to keep an eye out for part two of this week's episode coming later this week. Also, don't forget to check out our friends at the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hat Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.